Over my uh, 10 years preaching here, I've really loved to preach biographies on key biblical figures. Usually something I do when I preach through a new book of the Bible. And so not long ago, we did a biblical bio on Matthew as we just started Matthew's gospel. I've also really loved doing biographies on Mark, Paul, Peter, John, and James so far. I personally appreciate just gaining some historical insight into these key servants. We better appreciate how God used them and spoke through them to the church. But there's another major figure of the Bible whom I think merits a biography. He pops up in many books of the Bible. Whenever he shows up, it's a big deal. This figure is a major player in scripture, and his impact on human history is second only to Jesus. You know, I'm talking about the devil. We just encountered the devil in Matthew's gospel. He shows up pretty much right away in the first book of the New Testament canon. Matthew 4, verse 1, says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil, diabolos in Greek, means the accuser or slanderer. Later in verse 3, he's called the tempter. Down in verse 10, he's called Satan, which means the opponent or the adversary. And that's who he is. We've already been introduced to Christ's human opponents in Matthew's gospel. Back in chapter 2, right when he was born, he drew opposition from Herod, the ruler, who tried to kill him. The civil authorities would oppose Jesus until his death. And the same goes for the religious authorities to whom we were introduced in chapter 3. The Pharisees and Sadducees would also oppose Jesus until his death. In fact, the civil and the religious authorities got together and they succeeded in killing Jesus. But there's a third adversary or opponent to the Messiah, one working in the shadows in the spiritual realm behind the scenes. He's the one actually moving and inspiring the human opponents of Jesus. It is this devil, this accuser to whom we are introduced in chapter four of Matthew's gospel. He's the ultimate opponent or adversary of God. So much so, that became his primary name, Satan, the opponent, the adversary. Jesus knew Satan. He needed no introduction. When he showed up in the wilderness, he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what he was after, what he was about. But wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Jesus successfully rebuffed Satan's temptations. He succeeded where the first Adam fell. It says down in verse 11 of Matthew 4 that then the devil left him. Luke's gospel adds, until an opportune time, this was the first we, are, we encounter Satan in Matthew's gospel, not the last. He shows up many more times. He's quite active through the life, ministry, and death of Jesus, and Jesus has a lot to say about him as well. However, Matthew never stops to explain the devil to us. He never gives us a bio. He writes, assuming his Jewish audience already has enough of a basic understanding on the identity and nature of the devil. But I find that that can no longer really be assumed today. When most people read the Bible today, they don't know much about the true identity and nature of the devil. The problem is not just ignorance. People know a thing or two about the devil. The problem is that we all just are helplessly influenced by the culture's notion of the devil. And we bring that to the Bible. For example, today, everyone knows who the devil is. They think it's that scary looking figure in a red suit with a pitchfork, a pointy tail and horns. 
Or he's this muscular, beastly-looking creature from like a horror film. Today, it's more in vogue to make the devil more human. And that scene in, in the recent TV show titled Lucifer, the real show, titled Lucifer. The premise is that the devil named Lucifer, Lucifer Morningstar gets bored of running hell. So he leaves his throne. He takes up residence in Los Angeles. That's the only part that makes sense. He runs a nightclub. He helps the LAPD solve murder mysteries. And, and then what do you know? He, apparently he falls in love and finds a way out of the darkness. So the tagline goes. I really wish that was just a bad joke, but that's a real show. I have to believe you all know better than to think of the devil like that. But at the same time, I think countless Christians, when pressed, would struggle to tell you much of what the Bible actually does say about who he is, what he does, what he's really like. Who is the devil? What is he like? Where did he come from? How did he fall? How powerful is he? How much does he know? What's he doing right now? What's his future role? What's his future end? Do you feel you're equipped with the knowledge of the truth concerning Satan? You need to be because he's still active. He still tempts. He still afflicts, especially through a a horde of fallen angels or demons under him. And scripture tells us what we need to do about this. We need to, James 4, 7, resist him. We need to, Ephesians 4, 27, not give the devil an opportunity. We need to, Ephesians 6, 11, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then especially 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, it tells us to be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. There are many, many more verses like this. And since we are Christians who bear the name of Jesus, you can expect we too will find opponents in the human realm civil authorities, religious authorities, but we can also bet that means we will find opponents in the spiritual realm as well. In fact, our most significant struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.11 says, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world, world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We need to be made aware of this struggle And our hidden adversary that, like Jesus, we might overcome temptation, we might resist him, and we might stand firm. So that's what I want to help you with this morning. Partly just to equip us in general, partly to prepare us for the rest of Matthew's gospel, and partly to help us overcome temptation like Jesus did in the wilderness. I want to give you a a bit of a biography on the devil We're most definitely warned against a morbid fascination with the occult in Scripture. But at the same time, we need to know our enemy. Spiritual warfare is real. And last week, coming off the heels of learning how to overcome temptation like Jesus did, we would do well to further know the schemes of the devil. So as a bit of a topical message, we're not going to cover everything the Bible says about him. But I want to take you through a search of the scriptures to help you know the great adversary of your souls, that you might resist him and stand firm. I'm going to search the scriptures to help you know the adversary of your souls, that you might resist him and stand firm. I think maybe the best way to do this in a short amount of time is to give you a survey of his career. 
What's the past, present, and future history of the devil? He can basically uh, put it together in seven periods, seven periods to Satan's career. And it starts with this. First, his period of perfection. His period of perfection. Open your Bibles to Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, use the table of contents if you need to. Find your way to Ezekiel 28 because I want you to see the passage yourself. We can't go into great detail here, this just being a survey, but throughout church history, Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19 have been interpreted to refer to Satan. And I think for good reason. Ezekiel 28 starts off with an oracle of judgment against the wicked king of Tyre. What made this king especially wicked is that he set himself up to be God. And God was going to lay him low to prove otherwise. God's going to judge him because it says in verse 2, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God's in the heart of the seas. Yet you're a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Here is a man filled with pride because of his position, making himself out to be God, and God was going to lay him low. But things change in verse 11. It's a basic rule of Bible interpretation that says, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Which just means we're not trying to insert some subjective hidden meaning into the scriptures. When it makes plain sense, that's just what it means. But there are times, though, when the plain sense does not make sense, and the context may indicate another meaning. That's how many have taken verses 11 through 19 here in Ezekiel 28. Verses 1 through 10 spoke of judgment against the ruler of Tyre, who is clearly a man setting himself up to be a god. But then verses 11 through 19 speak of the king of Tyre, That's significant because Ezekiel almost never uses the term king. And then you read these verses, you likewise have this king figure setting himself up to be God, but it seems very clear. This person is more than a mere man. Something seems amiss here. Read for yourselves. You be the judge. Follow along. Read verses 11 through 15 of Ezekiel 28. It's the second part of this oracle of judgment against Tyre. Verse 11 says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx and the jasper, lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. That seemed pretty interesting. And consider all this language that's used to describe this figure that really does not make any sense for a human king, the human king of Tyre. Verse 12, he had the seal of perfection. Verse 12, he was perfect in beauty. Verse 13, he was in Eden. Verse 13, he had every precious stone as a covering. 
Verse 14, he's called the anointed cherub who covers. He was on the holy mountain of God and in the midst of the stones of fire. Verse 15, he was blameless for a time. And then verse 15, he's described as being created, not born. The list goes on. We don't have time to delve into this further, but I do take the interpretation that as Ezekiel comes near the end of his oracles of judgment on all the godless nations around Israel, God inspires him to speak a word of judgment on the spiritual force behind all those wicked nations, namely the devil. It's just like God's curse in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. He started talking about the serpent, but it became very clear that his curse went on beyond the serpent. And he's really talking about the devil, even though the text doesn't say that. It's it's very obvious. And I think the same thing here. Ezekiel's words are going beyond the human king of Tyre to the evil force behind him, the devil. So if that is the case, what you have here is, is a bit of the origin story of the devil. And it starts off with the period of perfection. We gather that Satan was an angel created with the other angels in the beginning. Job 38 verses 6 through 7 indicate that before God created the physical world, he created the spiritual world, chiefly the angels, the angelic host. And thereafter, they stood by and witnessed God make the rest of creation. And it says they sang his praises. As God made the earth and the moon, the star, or the stars rather, and the sun, he made plants, he made people. The angelic host was watching, marveling, and praising God. And Satan was one of those angels. In fact, Satan appears to be one of, if not the greatest angel God created. Verse 14 describes him as the anointed cherub who covers It seems to indicate Satan was among this elite class of angels known as the cherubim. Scripture does teach that there are different types and ranks of angels. And cherubim seem to be on top. They're always pictured as God's divine attendants. They're they're the closest beings we ever see in relation to God's glory, which is a reflection of their own holiness. You can recall on top of the Ark of the Covenant, God told them to picture two cherubim whose wings were covering the glory seat of God. So Satan appears to be of the highest order of angel. And accordingly, he's pictured as having an exalted status and position here. Verse 12 said he had the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Satan was God's most immaculate creation. He's described as being covered with all these precious stones. The only other places these stones show up is covering the breastplate of Israel's high priest and also covering the new Jerusalem. These show that they're a reflection of God's own glory. Satan was made to to uniquely reflect God's own glory. In addition, it says Satan was on the holy mountain of God. He walked in the midst of the stones of fire. The identity of these stones is a mystery to us. But it shows that that Satan dwelt as close to God's glory as possible. Finally, it says he was blameless in all of his ways. He was sinless. He was holy. He was part of God's creation when he declared all things very good. Satan was included in that. It's amazing to think about. This figure we think of as the epitome of evil was actually once the most holy and glorious person apart from God himself. 
And the one we think of as this cruel, disfigured beast was actually the most beautiful, majestic creature God ever made. Satan was glorious. Think of an all-powerful, opulent king. And such kings would often surround themselves with with mighty warriors. They're, they're, They're greatest men, lieutenants really. No one stood closer to the throne than these men. And because they were so close to the throne, because they represented the king, the king made sure that they appeared glorious and full of splendor as well. And so it was with Satan before God's throne. However, something happened and something changed. I do believe Satan was the number one top angel that God created. More beautiful, more powerful than all the others. But at some point, he started to think he should be the one on that throne. This leads to, secondly, his period of corruption. His period of corruption. At the end of God's creation, he declared it all very good. That included Satan. But obviously, at some point between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, that changed. No longer was he very good. No longer was all rather very good. Some things were very bad, and that corruption started in heaven before it got to earth. We all know that Satan shows up in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. By then, he's already been corrupted. How did he get to that point? Well, the the next verses in Ezekiel seem to explain. Look at verse 15. He says again, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you are internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I've destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. This is still referring to the devil, then it makes clear his first sin was undoubtedly pride. And that's confirmed by 1 Timothy 3, 6, which says that elders must not be new converts, lest they be puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. In his beauty, wisdom, and majesty, Satan became puffed up. Holding the highest place of creation, he started to believe he should be on that throne. He should be the one calling the shots and receiving the glory. How this first sin of pride was ever birthed in the heart of a holy angel, we do not know. And clearly God sovereignly allowed it. Even Satan's fall was part of his plan. But the fact remains that that rebellion against God's rule took place in heaven first. Revelation 12.4 adds that, that when Satan first rebelled, he took a third of the holy angels with him. One third of the angelic host became the first subjects of his deception, and they rallied behind him as their chief. That's why Satan is called the prince of the demons, the ruler, the archon, the, the king of the demons. These demons or fallen angels now submit to him as they all bought the lie that it's, it's better to serve self than God. But as you know, Satan was determined not to keep his corruption in the heavenlies. He's going to take this show to earth. And so you find thirdly, his period of corrupting. 
his period of corrupting. Not just corruption, but corrupting. You all know Genesis 3, at the very beginning of God's creation, Satan enters the world to corrupt it. He tempted Eve. He fed her the same lie that it's, it's better to serve self than to serve God. He tells Adam and Eve that they too can be like God, knowing good and evil. But that was a deception because you realize they already were like God. God just finished perfectly making them in his image. In reality, Satan was trying to reform them now in his own image to make them his servants. And he succeeded. Adam and Eve took the bait. They bought the lie. They chose self and they lost God. And all mankind fell into a state of corruption thereafter, inheriting depravity from our head, Adam. And as a result, God cursed mankind. He cursed the earth. Creation was subjected to futility. Mankind was subjected to depravity. And uh, all, all manner of wrongdoing has resulted since then. Satan has effectively captured humanity under his power. What's that power? It's the power of death. That's what Hebrews 2.14 says, that he, the devil, held the power of death. What is death? Ultimately, it's eternal separation from God. Satan knew the wages of sin is death. So through deception, by leading us into sin, he knew we would be cut off from God and then ripe for the picking. And that's why in John 8, 44, Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. He killed the human race. And now all people are, are doubly lost. We are bound both to our own sin and to Satan. And just like 2 Timothy two twenty six says of the lost, They've been ensnared by the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Satan's kingdom began on that day in the Garden of Eden, his kingdom of darkness, where his will is done on earth. Kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the exercise of God's rule over his creation. And that kingdom rule was disturbed in the heavens when Satan fell. And then that kingdom rule was disturbed on the earth when Satan led mankind to fall. Now, of course, we know God allowed this because he had a greater plan for his greater glory. But God's kingdom on earth was effectively lost at the fall. Satan's kingdom began. Never since, God's revealed will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. Satan's will, by and large, is being done on earth. Because the world is in his power. This world is his domain of darkness. Colossians 1.3. He's called the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And it says the whole world lies in his power. 1 John 5.19. But not forever. Even from the very beginning. Even after the moment of the fall. God laid down in promised form. What he would one day do. To reclaim his earth. And his creation. And his kingdom rule. The promise is found in Genesis 3.15. That a seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent on his head. That a descendant of Eve, a human, would come and be the one to deal ultimately a fatal blow to the devil and his rule. I wonder if Satan ever bought that promise though. Because you know, for millennia, he never met a true challenger. 
No human ever came close to withstanding his temptation, his schemes. Noah, Job, Abraham, they all were pretty righteous, but they all fell. The nation of Israel held a lot of promise, but they fell big time. Then you have the great King David, this messianic figure. But no, he fell into sin rather easily. In fact, as you know, 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says that it was Satan who moved David to sinfully number the people. David was no match for his devices. No one ever was. For thousands of years, the devil made it his mission to corrupt God's creation, especially mankind. He has succeeded at every turn. Every nation was his. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. As we just learned in Matthew's gospel, that the seed of the woman had finally come. And in Christ Jesus, the devil met his match. Standing before Satan, as we just learned in that wilderness temptation was, was a man. The son of God, the divine son of God, took on a human nature and a human body. And in his humanity, he faced the devil's temptations, as we learned. No human had ever lasted long before Satan's devices, but not even a crack was found in Christ's armor. He overcame Satan's temptations time and time again, never once falling into sin. There was, however, one scheme of the devil Jesus could not avoid, and it's the cross. Ultimately, it was Satan who stood behind the human opponents of Jesus who put him on the cross. We explicitly know this was the case with Judas, right? Judas was the spark that led to his arrest. But John 13, 27 says that the devil entered into him on that final night. And there is no doubt that Satan and his demons were working through Pilate and the Jewish leaders, all conspiring to ensure that this supposed Messiah was dead and gone. And they succeeded. They all succeeded. But they had seriously underestimated the power of the one they killed. They failed to take into consideration that because he was sinless, because he was divine, and because he was willing, his death on the cross wasn't just a death. It was an atonement for sins. And his blood being more than enough to pay for all of our sins meant that death could not hold him as God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The state of death, that the state of separation from God couldn't last. Jesus was raised from the dead. And in that moment, Satan's chokehold on this world was broken. This brings us to the fourth stage in Satan's career, his period of defeat, his period of defeat. You can turn over now to Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 1 verse 16, it tells us it was actually God the Son who created all things, even the heavenly host. All things were created through him and for him. He is the head over them all, whether they recognize it or not. And for Satan and demons, when they when they left their domain and rebelled against Christ's headship, he was going to do something about that. Their challenge to his supremacy would not go unanswered. God allowed evil in this world. 
but not forever. He will judge and remove all evil. That final judgment is still future, but Paul in Colossians makes clear that the final sentence was rendered on the cross. Satan and demons are still allowed to exist and persist in this age, but they're a defeated foe. For the Son of God has completely conquered their power through his death and resurrection. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, After the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. These terms, rulers and authorities, are used in Colossians to refer to the angelic host. And it says Jesus disarmed them after the cross. And the term for disarm means to strip off like armor, like clothes. These spiritual rulers have been stripped of their power. Their power has not been completely eradicated from this world yet, but Satan and demons no longer pose an eternal threat to God's true people. How did Jesus disarm them? Well, in overcoming sin and death, Jesus robbed Satan of his power over man. Satan's power over us is tied completely to our sin. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's very happy to to dangle your certificate of debt, your record book of sins over you, reminding God that you're guilty. You deserve judgment and separation. And he's right. Because of our own record book of sins, we all should be cut off from God forever. But what what if Jesus did something about all those sins? What if he erased our entire certificate of debt? What if he raised us to new life? That's exactly what he did. Look at the two previous verses, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We too were held captive by death in our sin. But Jesus paid it all and raised us to new life with him. It's just like it says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, Christ, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ himself, as a man, conquered sin, Satan, and death when he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And this is why now Satan has no power over those who are in Christ. This is what Jesus says. Revelation 1.18. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What can you say to that? What can you say back to that? What can Satan say to that? You can't say anything to that. But these truths of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death 
are meant to encourage us to live in confidence. The one free in Jesus is free indeed. If any one of you are here today and you've not yet bowed your knee to Jesus as your king and your Lord, your only savior, you need to know whether you know it or not, you're, you're still in the domain of darkness. You're, you're shackled. And the only thing that awaits you is judgment by this Christ. But only Christ can set you free. Only he can redeem your soul. Only he can pay that certificate of debt and free you from the, these three enemies of your soul. Sin, Satan, and death. But you must go to him today. You must confess him as your king and offer him your whole life. And I pray you would do that today and live. For those of you who have done this, now cling to your Savior with a confident faith. Not a weak, shaky faith. A confident faith. Knowing that he too is your only hope. From your three enemies, sin, all of your sin, all of Satan's devices, and the second death. And as 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. You catch that? 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean Satan and demons can't still trouble us in this age. Judgment was rendered on the cross, but the full execution of that judgment and the administration of the penalty are still future. And therefore, although defeated, Satan still has some power. His power of death was robbed from him concerning the elect, those in the church. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1.13. But we can still be made to suffer at his hand. Satan can still tempt believers and afflict believers. He's an angel of darkness, but he can disguise himself as an angel of light to lead away the unsuspecting, to sow division in the church, and to inspire false teachers. And though it's futile, He's still fully active in opposing God's kingdom, which in this age is, is made known in the church. And so we must still stand firm against his schemes. A helpful analogy to understand the current state of affairs after the cross, but before the final judgment, is that, that relationship between Saul and David. Think back. David was clearly a type of Christ. And many have likened Saul to a type of Satan. If you remember, Saul was rejected by God as king for his sin. But even after he's rejected, he still reigned on the throne for quite some time. And on the flip side, David was anointed as the true king by God. But it was many years before he actually reigned on the throne as king. And in that time in between... Saul was constantly opposing David and his people. He afflicted them. He sought to destroy them. But it was all futile because God was with David. But the end was already determined. It was just a matter of time. Well, some would liken this to Satan. He has been judged by God, but for now he still reigns in power over this world by and large. Christ has been anointed as king, but the full administration of his kingdom 
is yet future. The kingdom has been inaugurated. We see the church as an outpost of the kingdom. But by and large, God's will is still not being done on earth as it is in heaven. In the nations, the will of Satan is still being done. And in the meantime, Satan continually opposes God's people with whatever time he's got left, just like Saul did. He's still scheming, Ephesians 6.11. He's still tempting, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He's still hindering, 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He's still accusing, Revelation 12.10. He's still persecuting, 1 Peter 5.8 and 9. He's still blinding the minds of the unbelieving that they might not believe the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's still snatching away the saving word and and sowing tares among the wheat field to, to dilute the church, Matthew 13. And he's still spreading deceitful doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.1. Good luck getting all those in your notes, by the way. <laughs> but this is why you still must be aware. You still must be alert. You still must be sober-minded. You still must stand firm. Satan has been defeated, but you can't let your guard down. Because, like we read, your adversary, the devil, he's still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking some to devour. And he will. He will stumble your faith. He can't possess you. He can't unsave you. But he sure can stumble your faith and sideline you in effectiveness if you let him. And that's why Peter says you have to be of sober spirit, be on the alert at all times. And then you resist him, he says, firm in your faith. That's all it takes. The only way Satan can mess with you now is through lies. That's it. All you have to do then to stand firm is to be grounded in truth. Like we learned last week from Ephesians 6, 11, or 10, 11. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And like we learned last week, that armor just represents the, the totality of God's truth and his glorious gospel. All you got to do is guard your mind with the truth. Learn to wield the sword of the spirit. You'll be able to resist the evil one. James 4, 4, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. He's trying to lead you astray like we read this morning from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Lead your minds astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You combat that by setting your mind on things above, not letting that happen. Satan is no longer a cause of fear for us, just like death. It's no longer a cause of fear. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God's on the throne, not Satan. Jesus has the keys of life and death, not Satan. You don't need to fear at all, but you must remain on guard for now. Our time is fleeting, but let's finish by, in kind of rapid succession, let me tell you about the three final stages to Christ's, or rather, Satan's career. The three final stages to Satan's career. Number five, his period of banishment. Number five is his period of banishment. After the fall, some think Satan was permanently banished from heaven and cast down to earth forever or even to hell. That is actually not true. Satan was expelled from God's special presence, which he enjoyed as a covering cherub. But Satan still has access to the heavenly realm. He can function 
in heaven and on earth. And for sure, his special access to the glory of God was revoked. But you read Job 1 and 2 and other passages, it makes very clear that it was actually commonplace for Satan to appear before God in his throne room. Not to worship, but to accuse the brethren, which is something he still does. No, rather, Scripture teaches it's not until the tribulation that Satan is permanently banned from the heavenly room of God. You can go to Revelation 12 if you're quick. Revelation 12, 7 through 12, this speaks of the midway point through the future seven-year tribulation. And in this vision, the Lord tells John what will take place in the heavens during this time of wrath on earth. The midway point of the tribulation. Revelation 12, if you're there, you can look at verse 7. It says, then there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon who's elsewhere identified as the devil. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Is that this future time that Satan loses his heavenly access once for all. He's banished to the earth at the midpoint of the tribulation. This, in fact, is one of the main reasons why at the midpoint and after the tribulation gets so intense and the wrath magnifies. Like it says down in verse 12 of Revelation 12, it says, Woe to the earth and to the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. It's also during this time that Satan will energize these figures known as the Antichrist and the false prophet, 2 Thessalonians 2. He will indeed unleash great wrath upon the earth, deceiving many until the end. But that end will come when Christ comes. This leads to number six, his period of binding. His period of binding. This is in Revelation 20. By the end of the tribulation, Satan has through the Antichrist led all humanity in a unified rebellion against God and his people. Evil and wrath has reached a fever pitch. That is, until the Son of Man comes. And coming with him are all of his holy angels. Revelation 19 describes that second coming. And you find there, it is Christ himself who slays all the wicked. With the sword proceeding from his mouth, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And after he returns, this is what happens to the devil. Revelation 20 verse 1 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. This place, the abyss, was referenced several times earlier in the book of Revelation. It's a holding cell for the most wicked, powerful, and vile fallen angels. Some are kept bound there for millennia. They're not released until the tribulation. 
They'll bring great wrath upon the earth. Those cast into the abyss don't come out. You can't get out. That's the whole point. It's not a metaphor. It's a place of literal confinement away from heaven and away from earth. And the point is, after Jesus returns to set up an earthly kingdom, Satan's activity is reduced down to zero in heaven and on earth. When Christ comes, there's no more place for him on earth. He will no longer deceive the nations. His work of deception and rebellion are over. I know there are some, namely amillennials, who by their system, they're forced to believe that that this binding of Satan is talking about this present age, that right now Satan is bound in the abyss like this. But in my estimation, it's, it's one of the most untenable positions out there. I've heard all sorts of verbal gymnastics to try and show how he actually really is bound. He's not deceiving the nations right now. But none of them are convincing, at least to me. And you look outside yourself. You see that the gender, the social, the sexual chaos in all the nations. And you don't think Satan's behind that deception. And then you have 2 Corinthians two or 4 verse 4, which says Satan is right now the God of this world. And he is right now still blinding the minds of the unbelieving that they might not receive the gospel. So I'm pretty sure he's still right now deceiving the nations. No, it's not until Christ returns that he will be put in his place. But even this is not the end. After Christ returns, he'll establish a millennial kingdom on the earth where finally God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And this will be a glorious kingdom, but, but not even the millennial kingdom is a perfect kingdom because sin still exists. It goes to show you, even with a perfect king and a perfect government, if sin still reigns in the heart of some men, it's all for naught. And so by the end of the millennial kingdom, the earth is repopulated, and there's still a vast number of people who have not been regenerated. And in their hearts, they want to rebel against King Jesus. They can't. They'll be put down. But in their hearts, they want to rebel against King Jesus. All they need is a spark. And in God's plan, Satan would be allowed to be that spark one last time. He'll be released from the abyss to lead mankind in a final rebellion. But this time, it, it won't last long. This gives us uh, number seven. Lastly, his period of judgment. Lastly, his period of judgment. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. It says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. There's not even a battle. Verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented forever and ever. This is the end. It's the end of Satan. It's the end of demons. And it's the end of all those who have joined his rebellion, turning away from God and his glory. It's an end of final judgment and torment. Never again think of Satan as the ruler of hell. 
He is the chief prisoner of hell with the, the worst sentence. And also, if you're ever troubled by the problem of evil within Christianity, at the very least know that in the end, problem solved, right? Evil is judged. Evil is removed from God's kingdom forever. Every wrong is made right. Believe it or not, a ton more could be said to add to this biography of the devil. But I think this retelling of his career will suffice for now. This helps us gain a greater understanding of our ancient foe. And what an amazing tale. He went from being the closest one to the light of God's glory to now being the furthest one cast away into the deepest outer darkness. He went from being this this creature covered in precious stones reflecting the glory of God to now being this creature covered in brimstone and cast away from the glory of God. And such is the case for all who persist in exchanging the glory of God for a lie. But again, we can thank God because just by his grace, only by his grace, we overwhelmingly conquer all things through him who loved us. Look, we're all going to die. News to you, maybe. We're all going to die. You, me, all of us. And in God's sovereignty in this age, he might even allow Satan to kill us. You can listen to Revelation 2 or turn there. This is Christ's message to the faithful church, the faithful and persecuted church of Smyrna. He says to them in Revelation 2, 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The Jews in Smyrna have become so deceived that Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. And together with the pagans in that city, they were going to unleash a massive persecution on the church. So what's Jesus going to do? He's going to rescue them from this persecution, this tribulation, lowercase t. No, he's not. Is he going to rescue them from death? No, he's not. He will rescue them out of death. Look at verse 10. He says his message to them. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until release. Doesn't say release. Be faithful until death. And I'll give you the crown of life. Uh, A lot of them were not getting out of that jail. They were not going to make it through alive. And the devil was going to be the one ultimately responsible for it, though they would never know unless Christ told them. Many were going to die, even at the hand of the devil, just like Jesus. But what does that really matter? Death is not our end. They can kill the body. They can't touch the soul. Our bodies are all going to die one way or another. But, but what does it matter? It's just like Paul says over in Romans 8, 38, 39. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ Jesus our Lord by faith, then that's, that's talking about you. Nothing can separate you from his redeeming love. You now must simply cling to Christ and hold on to him. And you too have to be faithful unto death. We have many opponents, some human, many more spiritual, unseen. But no matter what the future holds in this world, where we all know the domain of darkness, sure seems like it's breaking out. You just have to stand firm against sin, stand firm against the schemes of the devil, and you do that by holding fast to Christ. Just be devoted to him. That the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, it's all you need to stand firm. Let your confidence in your Savior, your coming King, let it be greater than the sum of all your fears. He's got a crown of life. And like James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for Christ, our Savior, our head, our Lord, and our King. And he reigns on this throne right now. And he reigns in us and through us, through this church. We long for the day when he reigns on earth as well. And we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right now, we, we know and understand the world is still in the power of the evil one. But we pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And keep us steadfast, Lord. We know that there are so many enemies of our soul. They still persist. They, they want to take us down. We, we, we give you thanks that they can't. Ultimately, no one can steal our soul. If we're in Christ, we are secured by the Father. Yet help us to stand firm and just by clinging to Christ that we would not be stumbled. We, we thank you for our Savior each and every day. We need these truths re, re, refreshed in our minds each and every day. It's not a complicated thing. We just need to be like Martha or Mary, rather, sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking him in, this, this purity and the, the simplicity of just following Christ, our head, being devoted to him. Convict us to set our minds on things above. That's how we will resist in the evil day. Come what may, whether tribulation or distress or peace and prosperity, come whatever may, Lord, may we be found in Christ, devoted to him, our head, for your glory until the day when we are, are with him forever. Until then, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.